Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. My name's Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. Today my guest is Felix Francis, author of Iced, the latest Dick Francis thriller. Felix took on the popular crime series set in the horse racing world from his father after a period of joint writing, which we'll be discussing. Iced is a psychological thriller, and the stamp of Felix is clear while maintaining the ethos of the originals. Remarkably, the first Dick Francis, Dead Cert, was published in 1962, so next year will be the 60th year of publishing, and it's still an incredibly popular series. I'm sure there'll be a party for that anniversary, but in the meantime, let's hear what Felix has to say about Iced and a whole host of topics related to the racing world. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Felix. Lovely to have you with us. Oh, good morning, Paul. It's lovely to be here. Good morning. Well, we're here today to talk about your new book, your new thriller, Iced, um, and you just had the launch for that. How did that go? Oh, it went very well, Paul. Uh, uh, we were, uh, luckily, um, the restrictions are, are, are now um, gone and we had 130 people in a room. All right. And... Uh, all the usual suspects, and it was uh, great fun. Uh, we had a we had the book encased in a block of ice, and we had lots of things from the Cresta Run because the book involves the Cresta Run, like uh, toboggans and stuff, and speeches right. by uh, publisher and me, and lots of uh, lots of champagne. Um, it was quaffed down, so it was an excellent evening. And then I uh, hosted a dinner for twenty four people afterwards, so uh, it was a real good night out. Sounds like it, yes. We've all suffered a little bit under COVID, and I'm not going to drag us into a long conversation about it, but just from a writing perspective, how's that been for you? Well, uh, this book, I actually, I wrote, um, it, it was finished a year ago. So uh, right. it, it wasn't published in 2020, uh, not least because everyone was in lockdown and um, a lot of the published, a lot of the printers were on furlough, so mm. books weren't able to be printed. We simply decided that we wouldn't do a book in 2020. And I didn't write a book in 2021, um, uh, right. as I normally do. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that I need to travel to places to research. I mean, I is set uh, in St. Moritz, where mm. uh, horse racing takes place on the frozen lake. And also it involves the crest to run. And it was only going to those places that actually inspired the novel. But I, I, I've now started work on the next novel. So uh, right. I hope that there will be, uh, it will be ready and, and published in a year's time. So, Okay, well, we'll look forward to that one. In fact, with a bit of luck, we'll get to talk about that at the end, just a little bit, maybe. Um, interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, I... I'm always suspicious when writers say that they wrote the book sitting in the living room and they use Google Map and things like that, you know, because you just can't do it, can you, really? It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't really. I mean, I do use Google Maps a lot, yes. um, uh, and including in St. Moritz, because, I mean, I went there, but there are some things that you want to find out about, you know, where is the medical clinic, and, mm. and it's things that you hadn't looked up when you were there, but... There is nothing like actually being uh, at the place where you've set your novel. Um, and I uh, recently went um, up to uh, Midland 
um, in Yorkshire because of my, uh, the novel I'm working on is going to be set uh, there, which is a racing centre. I've used Newmarket and Landlord right. so many times. And uh, so this time I'm going to be um, going uh, north. Um, uh, and it was inspirational. I mean, I, I went there for three days, went there for a couple of days, went there for three nights. And I just uh, wandered around. And I don't know whether you know Midland, but there is the Midland Castle, which was the home of, uh, of Richard III. Right. Uh, and, and, and the whole uh, place, I mean, it, the, the, the castle is in, is in ruins, but there's still a lot, quite a lot of it standing. And it, it, and it was so evocative of, 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 wow, this is, I've got to include this mm. in my novel. And, uh, and also I went, um, I just went and knocked on the door of the, uh, of the training stable next door and, and uh, um, went into, saw the trainer and went up on the gallops with him. And, and it was, it was inspirational to, uh, uh, and helped me in, in, formulating the the next story just like Sam Moritz did for Christ and 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 yes of course everyone uses Google Maps and goodness gracious how did anyone write a novel without the internet <laughs> or, or how did anyone ever write anything and my father did um without a word processor uh, but um, but there's nothing quite like being there no um, absolutely no, it's interesting, though, because I can get a sense from that. You actually kind of, you build up the atmosphere, don't you? You kind of absorb the atmosphere to yourself, and then that's what you can put in the book. Absolutely. And uh, uh, that atmosphere and, and, and setting is very important, I, mm. I, I feel. And, and uh, you know, storyline, of course, is, is important. But sometimes the storyline comes from asking people questions. I mean... And sometimes asking the right people the wrong question. With one of my books, I asked a question of a of a a, a vet, uh, um, something about whether you could um, smuggle drugs in, inside a horse. In the same way, as you know, swallowing drugs in uh, uh, in in wrapped in condoms and and things, and and and, uh, and waiting for them to appear at the other end. Uh, I, I thought, well, that would be quite an interesting option. Could you do that with a horse? Because uh, so I thought this was a great idea. And then the, the vet said, no, it won't work because uh, a horse has a big sack in its uh, digestive system where, right. I mean, the grass has to sit and ferment. I mean, horses have this sack, casum sack inside, which means that the grass is, stays in and is fermented. And he said the drugs would just simply drop to the bottom of that. Eventually the rubber would perish and the, and the horse would die of a drug overdose. And I thought, oh, that's a real shame because I thought that was quite a, an interesting uh, option. And he said, uh, uh, but you don't have to put it in this digestive system. Have you ever heard of marbling? Well, I don't want to go into the detail <laughs> of marbling, but marbling is a way of, of um, stopping a horse coming into heat by inserting um, some... Uh, sterile glass marbles into into its womb, right? Fools the horse into thinking it's pregnant. And he said, "Well, they don't have to be solid marbles, do they? They could be spheres containing drugs." You see, and I mean, suddenly 
It's about asking the wrong question to the right person. Yeah, so you can't get a happy accident in a sense. And, and what you wound up with actually is quite incredible, isn't it? Because that well, really makes it a story that takes it away from, or it takes it right into the heart of a world people want to know about the racing world. Yes. Just on, let's go back a little bit then. Let's start out. When did you discover your dad's uh, writing? Well, the, his first novel, Dead Cert, uh, was written when I was uh, eight years old. Yes. I mean, he, he was already a writer because he'd um, written his autobiography after the Devon Lock episode. Devon Lock was the Queen Mother's horse, which collapsed in the Grand National uh, 40 yards from the winning post right. well into and, um, and a literary agent, uh, a man called John Johnson, who was Celia Johnson's brother, had said um, this was a good peg in which to hang an autobiography. So Dad has written that, and, and John Junior had heard about the autobiography and asked him to write for the Sunday Express. So by the time the first novel came along, Dad had been um, a newspaper man for five years, mm-hmm. uh, he had one book out, which was the autobiography. Um, and uh, racing is called The Sport of Kings. And his book, uh, because he wrote for the Queen and the Queen Mother, he, he, he called it The Sport of Queens. Anyway, the, uh, uh, the first novel came out, uh, it was written when I was eight. And of course, I didn't read it then. But I wrote, I started reading them when I was about 12 or 13, caught up pretty quickly. Um, and then, of course, it was the family business. I mean, my mother and father worked on the books together. My father was always Richard, and he was always Richard at home. And to me, Dick Francis was Richard Francis and Mary Francis, you know, as it were, con- conjoined at the pencil. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, um, uh, the, it was a family business. I mean, the first thing I wrote for a Dick Francis novel was I just – I designed the bomb that blew up an aeroplane in Rat Race. Which right, was, which is 1970, I think, isn't it? Indeed. I was a 17-year-old A-level physics student at the time, and and I wrote the computer program in Twice Shy, even though uh, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say so because it was pretty cutting-edge at the time, but now it's terribly out of date. <laughs> and, um, and my daughter, uh, I, I realise how out of date that, book is because my daughter read it many many years later and she said uh what's a cassette and that, and that was that was i mean i know that cassettes are bring uh, are making a bit of a comeback now but at the time it was you know it's almost uh horrifying it's like almost like saying what's a pencil you know um anyway um i, I did that i did a lot of the the uh uh, the meteorology and, the, and all the science bits, uh, how much explosive was required to blow up a house in uh, uh, in hot money, and all those things. So, um, it, uh, I mean, I remember my father. I remember being at Cheltenham races, and uh, we were we were in someone's box, and my father had been introduced to to uh, a man called Michael Mellish, who was a, who was a merchant banker. And we went out to the car afterwards. We thought we were going home. And my father just said, uh, just a minute, I'm going to go back in. I want to ask a question. Well, we, my mother and I sat in the car for the next hour and a half. Right. Uh, and, uh, and my father came out, which was very surprising for my father because he always liked to beat the traffic. 
And eventually, when he returned with a big beaming smile on his face, and what he'd done is he'd gone up to the uh, merchant banker and said, and this was back in the early 80s, he said, would you lend me a million pounds to buy a stallion? And um, the uh, merchant banker was, was rather taken back, aback by this request, uh, as you could imagine. And, Indeed. And started asking all sorts of questions of my father, you know, what was the name of the stallion, what was it, Britain, and all this sort of stuff, without realising that actually this was research. <laughs> And uh, so that was uh, so that was the way in which life was. I mean, I, I've I've been quoted often as saying, and it's absolutely true that um, the, the the talk over the breakfast table um, would not be about who who was doing the school run, but whether Sid Halley could survive the night with a thirty-eight slug in his guts, with his with with, with his blood dripping through a crack in the in the linoleum floor, you know, things like that. So uh, and. That was the line. I mean, I grew up in what I consider to be the greatest fiction factory of the 20th century. And it was, uh, uh, and I used to talk about the books all the time. I mean, I became, became my parents' business manager uh, in 1990. And uh, I used to go out and visit them. They lived uh, out in, first in the United States and then in the Caribbean. Yeah. Right. Mostly because my mother's health was not good. I mean, my mother had had polio uh, when right. she, when, uh, when she was twenty six, and and it left her very um, her breathing was very poor, and she didn't um, survive very well in in uh, British. Yeah, so it was a matter of real necessity. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was it, that was the reason. But I used to go out there and I used to read it chapter by chapter, you know, and and say, "Come on." Get on with it. Get on with it. I need to know what happens, <laughs> and I and I get the same from my wife here and now, who, who reads it chapter by chapter as I write it. So she always wants to know what's going to happen next. But anyway, that that's so. It was, and I learned it from my mother and father about the rhythm of sentence and how um, you know to keep. Some reviewers say rather disparagingly. Um, that the Francis books, they're just easy reading. Well, let me tell you, we work very, we, my father and mother before me, and now my, now I work very hard to make them easy reading. I don't want people to be able to put the book down and find it's di too difficult to read. So um, I learned about that. So when I came to start writing them, you know, everyone said, well, you, you know, you must have, copied your father's style but actually it's the style that i've been taught yeah just to go back a, a little bit one quick question on that were you a f fan of crime fiction in general you know was it an influence on you in any way at all or was it just because of this <clears throat> wonderful atmosphere around the house and and the talking about crime fiction and so on no i i read quite a lot of um crime fiction and and adventure stories i mean i was um I devoured every new Alistair MacLean book that right. came out. Um, I mean, Where Eagles Dare uh, was was fantastic. I remember reading um, Ice Station Zebra uh, uh, in the middle of uh, um, the desert in in Bahrain, where it was you know, <laughs> the contrast. It was forty degrees uh, centigrade outside, and I was shivering <laughs> from reading this uh, about this cold 
And that was, and then Desmond Bagley too. Uh, um, I loved the Desmond Bagley books. I loved the Neville Shute books. It was more adventure um, fiction um, than, than crime fiction until, of course, I came across uh, um, Phyllis James, P.D. James. Yes, right. And uh, um, read, you know, A Shroud for a Nightingale, and that set me off. And, of course, everyone read Agatha Christie. Right. Uh, I had the great uh, honour and, well, and privilege, really, to to make tea for Agatha Christie on a number of oh, occasions. Yeah. What I give to have an opportunity to speak to her now. Uh, my father was a member of the Detection Club, and Agatha was the president of the Detection Club. Yes, right. But she didn't want to speak, and she discovered that Dick Francis, who was a fairly <laughs> new member, this was in the in the nineteen late nineteen sixties, was a fairly new member of the Detection Club, and only lived five miles away from her. Having discovered my father lived only a few miles away, she would summon him over so that she could tell him what he had to say on her behalf uh, at the upcoming Detection Club <laughs> dinners. Uh, and so I used to drive him over to uh, Wallingford, and, um, and then we would go in, and I got dispatched off to uh, uh, the kitchen to make the tea. And I, I tell you that I think my father was more frightened of her than I was because my father hated tea, but even if he drank it, nevertheless, I mean, because she, she wouldn't have coffee in the house. So uh, that was quite fun. Uh, but I'd go off to the kitchen to uh, to chat with Max, her husband, who, was, who in my view is much more exciting. But my goodness, I'd love to have one of those occasions again. And I must have done it about, oh, at least four or five times. So... Uh, that um, sounds brilliant. Yeah. Uh, so I, my, I always used to say my my literary claim to fame was that I used to make tea for Agatha Christie, but I suppose <laughs> nowadays I've got a, a little bit more claim as well. I think I think you can surpass that. Yes, I think so. I'm curious about one thing you said there about people are trying to put it down by saying easy to read, but in fact, if you look at a writer like William Boyd. He goes out of his way to make his literary novels easy to read because yeah. that's what readers actually want at the end of the day. Yeah. And, of course, you point out it's not easy to make an easy read. Some reviewers think that, you know, that literature needs to be hard work. Yeah. Um, I mean, my question about that would be, though, what do you think it is that fans actually love about the novels? It is something about, um, a, a, I write and Dad wrote first-person narrative. But I think first-person narrative uh, gives you the opportunity as a, as a writer to to put in a lot of um, what the the main character is thinking, and I think uh, quite a lot of emotion you can put into the novel because it's emotion that your main mm. character is actually feeling at the time, and and it would not necessarily um, express in words. Which so if it wasn't in the first person you wouldn't get that. So I think that is, I mean, writing in the first person does have its disadvantages, of course. Everything has to be a timeline. Everything has to take place within the, um, within the experience of your main character. Yes. But, um, but I think that the, a lot of it's to do with the main character and his attributes. I mean, my father was an incredibly courageous man. Everyone knows that he was a jockey. He mm -hmm. rode 
He rode horses at 30 miles an hour over huge angry fences. Uh, if you're if you're if you think you're going to get hurt, you won't do it. Um, but before that, he was a bomber pilot in the RAF during the war, right. and uh, flew Wellingtons off a little-known Northamptonshire airfield called RAF Silverstone, right? Which where they now have the Grand Prix, indeed. And which originally, of course, they raced cars around the perimeter track, but they still have. Um, a, 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 a hangar straight where the, where the hangars they do, indeed, yes. and they also have a Wellington straight which is where uh, which ran along one of the runways and my father did a tour of operations right flying uh, Wellington bombers off there uh, um, and as he said when, when you're jumping Beaches Brook at 30 miles an hour on a horse at least no one's shooting at you uh, which is what, uh, which is, and it was safer than flying a, a bomber over Germany at 10,000 feet at night. He, so he was a very courageous man uh, in everything he did. He, he never showed any fear at all in, in, in my experience. And he was a very loyal man. Mm. He, he considered that loyalty um, was the the greatest attribute. I mean, he, he, he was published by the same publisher for um, over 50 years. Right. And he, and he was very loyal to friends. And I think that those are the attributes that he, that he put into his characters, um, loyalty, courage, and also a, a strong sense of right and wrong. Um, uh, I mean, it was, jokingly, people say, well, you know, Dick Francis' novel, the main character will get beaten up at some stage because that's what is always there. Uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's pretty true. Uh, it, it, it is. It, um, uh, and he does. Or in case of one of my novels, she does. Indeed. Uh, but it is, um, it is that, that sense of, of right and wrong, that sense of loyalty and, and courage, which I think is something which means that the the readers really care about the individual. And I think that um, it is important to to make that main character someone who you really want to know what happens to them. For a start, they've got to go on a journey through the book, so they've got to be different at the end than they were at the beginning. Yes, right. You know what? That's really interesting because you started that saying sort of like, well, it's very difficult to say what people really love about the books, but I think you absolutely hit it perfectly it's about the morality with the central character we all kind of imagine ourselves to be this ordinary guy who gets caught up in something that takes him into trouble and it's that sense of clear sense of morality in the yeah, novels well, well, i won't say all my char- main characters but the majority of my main characters and the majority of my father's main characters uh, are amateur sleuths as it were mm. they're not we don't write the tradition he doesn't he didn't and i don't write the traditional detective novel you know also don't um, write police procedurals or anything like that even though there's quite a lot of police always in in the books so um and and often the my main detective far from being a policeman is um someone who is thrust into a situation which 
he didn't really want. It was mm-hmm. it was it wasn't looking for. I mean, I, I think back to a book I wrote called Bloodline, uh, where my main character is a TV and racecourse commentator, and he's commentating on a race at Linkfield Park where his twin is riding. Uh, it's his twin sister, and he's he is convinced that she doesn't win the race on purpose which of course is an absolute no-no for yes, in, in right. horse racing, uh, which will be uh, punished by being warned off and losing your livelihood. Yeah. And he has dinner with his sister that night in a restaurant, and he says, shame about whatever the name of the horse was. And she just sort of looks down and says, I forgot that you were commentating because she did what they used to do as kids, which was make it look like they were trying to ride a finish when in fact they weren't. And and he says, well, why did you do it? And then she, they have a big blazing row. And at the end of the dinner, well, before the end of the dinner, she storms off, leaves him uh, there on his own. Well, uh, and then the next thing you hear is that three o'clock in the morning, knock, knock, knock on his door. And it's a policeman yeah. to inform him that his sister has died. And he, And then he says to the policeman, I always told her that that car would be the death of her. And the policeman says, oh, no, sir, it wasn't a car accident. She jumped from the 15th floor of the Hilton Hotel in London. Right. And the reader then, gets on jolt with that. Well, it's the guilt. Mm. You know, did she jump because of the row we had and the things I said to her? Why did she lose the race? Why did she jump? And so he is thrust into this situation where he wants to find out more about mm. what's happening. And, and indeed, of course, did she jump? One last question then before we get on to Iced. Under orders and how it all started for you writing the books, tell us a little bit about that. In 1999, mm-hmm. they decided that um, it was all getting a bit much. Right. And they thought that the 1999 book um, – would be their last and uh, they really had enough. They were tired. And so they decided that the last, their 1999 book, Second Wind, would be the last one. Right. And um, as usual, uh, we went to uh, Ascot um, to the uh, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Diamond Stakes, which is at mm-hmm. the end, end of July with, with a, copies of the book to give to the Queen and to the Queen Mother. Now, my father had always said to the Queen Mother, uh, may I dedicate a book to you, ma'am? And, uh, and she had waved her finger at him and said, only when I'm 100. Ah. And um, so in 1999, my parents uh, and, and I went to the Royal Box and we gave the copy to the of Second Wind to the Queen Mother. And... She looked up at my father and said, I'm so looking forward to my book next year. <laughs> and so I remember driving my parents home again afterwards and them saying, we've, we've just got to do another one. Oh, my goodness. We've got to do another one. So they set about doing another one. It was called Shattered. And my goodness, it was very well named because right. they were exhausted by it. And in fact, when I went over to uh, their house in the Caribbean to collect it with just a week to go. It was only three quarters finished. 
And I sat down and, and helped and wrote the last part of Shattered. And we got it in and my parents said, right, that's enough. My father said, I'm 80 years old, I'm retiring. And at the launch party for that book in September, they announced, my father announced that they were retiring and this would be the last one. And my mother's long and happy retirement lasted a mere three weeks. Right. And sadly, she died of uh, um, a heart attack. So it was a book too. It was a book too far. Mm. It was uh, really one book too many. Uh, however, the Queen Mother did enjoy having it um, dedicated to her. Anyway, everyone thought that that would be that. Anyway, five years later, uh, my father's literary agent asked me to lunch, which was, as I said, not unusual because I was managing their affairs. Yes. We went to the Gay Hazar in Greek Street in Soho, which I. Which a, a, a restaurant of great political intrigue, indeed, uh, but sadly no longer in existence. And uh, the agent said to me, he said, uh, "We have a problem, Felix. Um, all your father's books are going to go out of print. It's not that they're not good enough. It's just that there are a thousand books published in this country every week. The bookshops haven't got room on their shelves for uh, all the new ones, yet alone." the old ones, and, right. and everyone who works for corporate, you know, like Waterstones Corporate, um, their first job when they come out of university is to be a buyer, to read books and to decide what they're going to buy to put on the shelves of their stores. And they're all young and they've all forgotten that, or they never knew, and the books are going to go out of print, just like all the other books were going, you know, books like, Alistair MacLean and Desmond Bagley and hmm. Neville Shute, which I say I love them all, they'd all gone out of print. I mean, nowadays they've all come back into print a bit, yes. especially, especially because you can now print on demand and you and they're all available on ebooks and so hmm. on. But they'd all gone in those days. In, in, in this, this was 2005. The agent said, what we really need is a new hardback to stimulate the sales of the backlists. And I said, well, you know, I looked at him as if he was crazy. I mean, my father was now 85. I mean, God bless him. I loved him dearly. But he, but by that age, he could hardly remember what he had for breakfast, yet alone enough to write a novel, because you need a good memory to write a book. And my mother had been dead for five years. And I said, well, you know, Andrew, you're not going to get a new novel. He said, no, what I'm really asking is your permission to ask an existing established crime writer, and you would know who it was, but I'm not going to tell you because you would never. <laughs> okay. Uh, if he would write a Dick Francis novel by Sansa, just to stimulate the backlist. Well, I must have had a few glasses of red wine by that stage because I said, <laughs> uh, Andrew, I said, well, I've written bits of uh, Dick Francis novels for years including the end of Shattered, uh, uh, perhaps I have a go at writing a whole one. And to his eternal credit, he didn't roll his eyes or laugh uh, or say, you know, what makes you think that an ex-physics teacher can write a novel worthy of the name Dick Francis? <laughs> I'll give you two months to write two chapters. And, and then we will see, he said. 
what he meant by that was that he thought that after the two months he'd get the permission he wanted. So I went home and told my wife and said, I think I've done something a bit silly. And she said, no, get on with it, get on with it. So I wrote the two chapters. They ended up, they were two long chapters. They ended up being four chapters. And I sent them in to Andrew. We had another lunch at the Gay Hazar. And he said, well, there are two things you've got to do. One is you've got to get on and finish it. And secondly, you better go and talk to your father. And talking to my father was not easy. Uh, I said, I went to him and I said, well, Dad, you know, all the books are going out of print. What we need is a new hardback. Right. No, he said. I said it could be a Sid Halley book. You know, Sid Halley had been in three of Dad's. And, yes. And uh, it, it would be easy, uh, easier to, to use an existing character. Uh, so I'd already written the chapters about Sid. And, and, then, he, and then I said, uh, it could be about race fixing. No, my father said. <laughs> Uh, race, fixing, race fixing was very much in the news because uh, a champion jockey was about to go on trial at the Old Bailey. Uh, right. Race fixing, even though he was, uh, I'm not going to mention his name because he was found uh, innocent. No, fair enough. Found not guilty. And, uh, and he said, my father said, no, 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 I'm finished, I'm finished. And then I gave him what I'd written. And, uh, well, I actually said, well, I've got a title. Under Orders, which I thought was a great title for a race-fixing book. Yes. And I gave him what I'd written. He read it, and he suddenly got quite excited by it. Um, in fact, he got very excited by it. And, and I got on and finished it. And it came out in September 2006. It came out as a Dick Francis novel. Didn't mm. have my name on it anywhere. Uh, my argument was that if it was going to stimulate the Dick Francis spat list, it had to come out as a Dick Francis novel. And it sold. Of course it sold. It had that name on the front. It went to the top of the bestseller list on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but I was terrified by the, by the, when the Sunday after it came out, because I knew that there was going to be a couple of you know, a review in the Sunday Times and a review in it in Sunday Telegraph, and I was a bit terrified of what they would say. I thought that it would say, Dick has lost it. And they didn't. They all said, the, ma the master is back. So that was a bit of a surprise. And the publisher said, well, we want another one. So I set up um, the next one, which was called Dead Heat. Uh, and when I nearly finished it, well, the American publishers said, we're going to have to put your name on the front as well. Mm. Because they were terrified of getting... Um, sued for oh uh, for yes of course because um, i would have been happy for it to be another dick francis but uh so it had dick francis in huge letters on the front and underneath in the smallest font they could find and phoenix francis. <laughs> uh but i wrote it and then the next three came out with uh with both our names on um but i wrote them and he read them mm. uh, and in fact crossfire which was the last one that had both names on he didn't even read it. I mean, he died when it was only half written. Right. Uh, he'd been so unwell that he hadn't even read a word of it. So um, I'd been flying solo from the start, really, uh, even though they both had, had both names on. And the idea was to stimulate the backlist. And what might the plan to do that was suddenly I found that the books were having a life of their own and had taken off. Um and the front list books were the ones that everyone was interested in, even though I'm glad to say that, that Penguin Books reissued 
rejacketed and reissued all the backlist and they're still in print now. So I must must be doing something right. (laughs) No, that's true. And of course, you're on to your 15th novel now, aren't you? Iced. Iced is the 15th. I'm actually on to my 16th. Of course. Of course. I think I can probably tell you this. Um, Keep it under your hat. Don't be silly. I know you're not going to do that. (laughs) But uh, but I'm planning at the moment, no no complete promises, Sid will be making another... um, appearance fans will absolutely love to hear that uh, and uh, uh well he, he was in I, I wrote refusal with mm. sid and and i don't know whether you read the book but it but, uh, apart from the the main story there was the understory about um sid had been asked to, to take some tests whether he was going to have a hand transplant and right. the, very, the very last line of yes. refusal is um, Harry the Hands, the doctor, whose nickname is Harry the Hands, ringing up and saying, Sid, we've got you a hand. So I couldn't leave Sid forever. Uh, <laughs> I had to bring Sid back, and this time he's going to have a new hand. That's a real teaser for fans there. Um, well, but let's talk about Iced. Let's tell people a little bit about Iced, please. Okay. I, I set myself a, a, quite a, a challenge, I think. Yes. Um, it, it, ice takes place over six days, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, um, I, I've always written in the past tense, but those six days are all written in the present tense. And it is six days of <clears throat> mostly in San Moritz, where my character is uh, spending some time uh, getting his thrills by chucking himself down the crest to run Head first, that speeds up to 80 miles an hour, a little more than a tea tray with uh, no steering and, and, and the only brakes you've got are some spikes on your shoes. And, but white turf is on. White turf is, uh, is um, uh, where they race racehorses on Frozen Lake. Uh, and it's a cross between a bit of, you know, I, I say in the book that it's a, um, a strange cocktail of two parts frozen glorious goodwood Yes. Uh, one part, uh, haute couture, uh, a, a major, a big slice of um, cordon bleu with just a dash of Yorkshire point to point for taste. <laughs> it is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. My character is an ex-jockey. He had to give up r- racing because uh, it was affecting his mental health and uh, his struggle with the scales and also with alcohol meant that he has to give up racing. And yet this weekend in Samaritz, he's thrust back into the horse racing. He's mm-hmm. talked into helping out uh, against his better judgment. Uh, and he begins to discover things which begin to make sense about what happened to him in his in his past life. And so even though the book takes place over those six days, a lot of the book is written as my character reminiscing about his life before. So starting off as a jockey, I mean, starting off, in fact, uh, with his father, who was a a former multi-time champion jockey himself, being killed in a car accident uh, when Miles was sitting alongside him, and uh, and all the uh, events which take place after that, I say in the book that it's one of the problems that a son has taking over from 
a, a father in his own uh, occupation. And I knew that that was a bit of a play on, mm. on what I'm doing myself. It's a psychological thriller in many respects. Um, it has crime in it, but, uh, you know, someone, what someone said to me the other day, uh, how many people are murdered in the book? And I said, well, you'll have to, you know, have to read it to find out. Yeah. Uh, after all, iced is the American term for someone being killed. It was, it was a challenge to write a story which interwove between the present and the past, mostly the only tell, telltale of which was the tense in which the book was written. Mm. And uh, I did... Um, I found it quite hard, but I found it extremely satisfying to get there in the end. Yeah, well, let's start with that. You mentioned the Cresta Run because that's where we meet Miles. He's on the Cresta Run and he's actually going down with this crazy thing that it seems to do. The Cresta Run, we ought to explain, the Cresta Run is a three-quarter-mile long ice chute uh, down which it's a, down which people throw themselves on on a toboggan. Uh, tray is a good description. Thirty-five kilograms of high-precision steel and and carbon fiber. Uh, and in the nearest people will probably see it to it is is the skeleton um, mm, in the Olympics. Yeah, in the Olympics. And the, the drop from top to bottom down this ice chute is equal to three times the drop over Niagara Falls. Mm. Niagara Falls in a barrel looked quite uh, um, attractive compared to throwing oneself down the crest to run. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. Uh, so the book starts with our character. I mean, the first line of the book is, um, I know I'm in trouble on the run down to Shuttlecock, uh, but I'm laughing. I don't care. See, and- I thought this was a brilliant introduction to the character because you get the sense from this of how he's going to get into trouble in the future, but you start to get a sense with the panic attack and everything about how he's, his past is going to play into this as well. And this is where you were talking about having, it's almost like two books. You could almost separate this off and say, this is Miles's biography. And you yes. very much had a two-strand story here. Did you envisage it that way to start with? I, I did, but I think that the, the, uh, the two strands come together. Uh, yes, which, yes, absolutely. Which is important. And also there are some surprises on the way. Uh, and it is a book of, um, redemption in mm. certain respects, but it's more than that. It's a book of uh, uh, of how s- strong our minds are uh, in comparison sometimes to how the strength that we have in our bodies. And and and, and I have some experience of this in in our in the, in the family, and mm. um, so there is a, a lot of things, a lot of experiences that I had or being around mm. were, draw, were drawn on in order to um, write the story. And I don't think I could have written the story if it hadn't been written in the first person because it's very much about what happens inside Miles, uh, yes. his head and his heart, and how um, the, uh, the events of the book, both in the present and in the past, affect those mm. uh, and... Uh, and, and make him the character he is. And I think that and I, someone, um, uh, Tim Head, uh, wrote a, a wonderful review in, in Shots magazine, uh, yeah, right. which, which uh, 
says that uh, the, you know, the character is really fleshed out and, and you care about what happens to the character. He's not a two-dimensional, he's a very much a, a three-dimensional mm. uh, being. Uh, and, and that was something which I uh, absolutely loved. And, uh, and after all, Tim Head is uh, uh, a man who spends his life teaching um, uh, English literature. He's a, a, a schoolmaster and has been all his life. And so it was really lovely to, to read that. I mean, I'm not, not that I knew Tim, but I have spoken to him since. And to, to read him say that the character was really three-dimensional and we really and everyone really cared about the character, I mean, that's exactly what I, what I wanted to put into mm. his book. Did you want people... I mean, also, obviously, it's from what you've said, you cared about the issue as well, which is the issue of mental health. Is it important to you to explore that issue, if you like? It was quite important, but actually, since I finished the novel, and I, and I explained to you earlier that I finished it a long time before it was published, uh, even mm. though I, but since that, since I finished writing the book, there have been a number of instances of ex-jockeys uh, and one current jockey who who uh, have uh, had mental health problems to, to, mm. the, ex- to the extent that. Um, one or two of them have actually taken their own lives, and right. Uh, and I mean, I, 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 the book couldn't be blamed for that because it was already written. No, no. But it's terrifying that I had written something which then happens in you know, in close to what happens in reality. And it's, I mean, I was I, I spoke to a number of of very successful jockeys. I mean, I even spoke to uh, Stan Meller. Mm, yes. First man to ride a thousand winners uh, over jumps. Uh, mm. jump uh, it is estimated that in his career, I mean, he rode about a thousand, uh, I don't know, 1,100, 1,200 winners. I mean, AP McCoy rode over 4,000. Yes. So, yeah. But I mean, let us, Stan was the first one to ride a thousand winners. It is estimated he also had 750 falls. Right. Now, a fall is. When the horse goes down with you, 30 miles an hour, and jockeys are used to eating grass at 30 miles an hour from a great height, you know, there is, they are a certain breed apart. Mm. But even if you discount those 750 falls, he may have won a 1,200 races, but he lost an awful lot more. Mm. I mean, even A.P. McCoy, uh, he may have won 4,000 over 4,000 races, but he lost an awful lot more than 4,000 Yes, races. I see what you mean. I mean, the most successful jockey of all time was Fred Archer. Fred Archer was a jockey in the 1890s. Mm. He was, he was uh, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, David Beckham, Emma... Radicano. Radicano, and everyone else wrapped up because he was <laughs> yeah. the greatest sportsman of his time. He won a third of the races he rode in. Now, he, nevertheless, he lost two-thirds of the races he rode in. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter how successful you are, you're going to have more losers than you are winners. And, of course, Fred Archer did take his own life. So it's not new. Um, for a lot of jockeys, it's the weight issue. Mm. Flat race jockeys have it even worse than steeplechase jockeys. But I wanted to uh, show the battle um, with the scales as well as with the, the, the other runners as being an important um, area. Uh, mm. 
And it wasn't as a result of people, you know, the recent um, sad cases. It, it was written before that. Mm. It, in fact, terrifies me how much I uh, uh, seem to write into books. I mean, going back to that very first book, Under Orders, I had a three-time winner of the Gold Cup, horse, that is, mm-hmm. uh, who drops down dead of a heart attack. And not long after I, the book was published, Best Mate, a three-times winner of the, of the Gold Cup, drops down dead of a heart attack. And one of my copy editors, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to find a disease that had killed a certain person's parents in, uh, for a book called Even Money. They wanted them to have died in Australia. So I looked up diseases, Melbourne. And I got this disease came up um, on the internet. I thought, that'll do. And then I realized that it wasn't Melbourne, Australia. It was Melbourne, Florida. I decided to transpose it into Melbourne. And I put in that they died of swine flu. Now, I wrote that before swine flu. Anyone ever knew anything about swine flu and then swine flu came out uh, it was the big thing just before the book was published and I'd written it a year before (laughs) Uh, so much so that my copy editor would I please not put in about a copy editor who dies of a heart attack (laughs) at at any point so I wrote back and said how about a copy editor who wins the lottery oh yes he said that would be a good idea but so many things I put into the book mm. then happen. But it is scary that, that uh, about this mental health of jockeys. And I, I, I hope that people don't think I was jumping on a bandwagon of, of someone else's misfortune. No. I, I can tell you how it came across to me. Um, I thought when I was reading the book, because I think some people are going to say, you know, how much of this is about Felix and his relationship with his dad. That's going to come up because some of the things are in the book. And we'll, we'll get to that. But... The thing about the mental health issues, what I thought was, you've been a man who's seen a lot of people and you've observed what it's like in this life, and it was never talked about. And I got the feeling that, you know, the character of Miles was sort of a reflection on all these lives, the people where you'd seen it go wrong, where you'd seen the problems crop up. So it was really a way of reflecting on on something that nobody wanted to talk about, in a sense, but it's always been out there. Yeah. Well, I, uh, yes, I think you're right. And, and, and I think we all, uh, if you haven't had experience of, anyone with mental health problems, then you're lucky mm. because most of us have uh, at least experienced either mental health ourselves or, or those close to us uh, um, have had, uh, who've had mental health problems. And I'm glad to say that people now talk about it more. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the talk about it has come about from the military um, mm. being involved in, in um, Iraq and Afghanistan. But, um, it wasn't mentioned in my childhood for all the people around me who, who had all fought. I mean, I grew up in the 50s and, and, and 60s. Everyone, all, our, all my school friends' parents had been through the war and mm. in the war as mine had. Um, there must have been an awful lot of mental health problems which were simply stuffed away and hidden behind closed doors. I do think it's advantageous that we're now more open about it and, mm. able, and able to give people the help they need. But yeah, um, mental health is an important uh, part of the book, but it's not a mental health, all novelists are in the entertainment business. Yes, of course. 
with the character of Miles, I never thought at any time this is Felix exercising his relationship with his father or anything like that. Father-son relationship massively impacts on Miles. But I take it we're not talking about uh, uh, sort of a reflection of your personal life in a sense. No, and Miles' relationship with his father is not the same as... No, right. I mean, for a start, Miles' father, uh, uh, you know, he, he dies... When Mars is twelve, I'm not giving yes. anything. But that's in the first chapter. Um, and my father um, uh, lived to a ripe old age of eighty-nine. Um, but I, in some respects, I mean, I'd, I'd taken over my father's uh, career and, and so on. And Miles attempts to do the same with with his father. So there are, but I, I never really thought that um, I was writing about myself in, mm-hmm. in my relationship with my father. I just put in a few little, um, almost personal jokes about, you know, it's always difficult to take over um, and do what your father did. Yes. I mean, you mention a lot of race courses in the book and you mentioned Foynhaven and there are just things that for bracing people or people who know anything about racing, they're going to click. Is it sort of a, a fun thing to have with the readers to Keep going with that. Yeah, I, I think it, it might be something to do with the fact that I was a teacher and uh, <laughs> always trying to put in a bit. I like to put in things that are interesting. It's like when you write a quiz, the quiz questions have either got to be interesting in themselves or they've got to have interesting answers. Right. Again, this thing about people uh, keeping their attent- people's attention is true in a book. You've got to, you, you need to get information in sometimes, but it's, it's sometimes, I mean, uh, this, a race takes place in Hexham, for example. Mm. Well, Hexham is considered um, to be not only one of the highest uh, race courses in the country, but also uh, one of the most p- picturesque. But also, and I spoke to someone, they said, oh, Hexham, every time you go there, the wind is coming straight off the Pennines and it cuts through you like a knife. <laughs> Well, that has to go into the book, doesn't it? Yes. It is set, sets the scene. It's the only race course where the wings of the, of the fences are all made up of, of hedges, beach hedges. And it's nice to, to spread it around a bit. And I loved going to um, to Lincoln, where there's uh, there used to be a race course, but the race course is now no longer right. there. But the grandstand still is. And I found that to be, you know, quite interesting. Just a fascinating little how, detail. How do you have a grandstand with no race course? Uh, but the grandstand was listed, so when they knocked the race course down, they couldn't knock the grandstand See, right. And uh, I'm not trying to preach to anyone, but, um, you know, I always say that my books are not about horses, they're about people. Um, racing is simply the canvas against which you paint the picture. And it, it, you don't need to know anything about a horse. It helps if you know which end eats and which end doesn't. <laughs> uh, but, um, but you might learn a bit. Yeah. Um, well, I was uh, going to say with ice, the other thing is I had no idea of white turf. Absolutely no idea. I knew about the caress run, but I had no idea about these races. So yeah, you do learn things. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, I, there are two race meetings I want to go to, which I haven't been to yet. Right. One of them is the Palio. In uh, yes, yes, Vienna. I had an invitation to go, and I don't want to stand in the middle, I want to be on a balcony so I can see. Uh, and I was going, I had an invitation to go on a balcony, but unfortunately, 
uh, it was the same day as my son was getting his wings ah. uh, uh, as a, a an army helicopter um, pilot. So uh, family comes first. I had to, of course, walk, yeah, or go. But if anyone knows anyone who is uh, um, can get me onto a balcony at, at, at the Palio, I'm, I'm up for that. And the other one is that I've seen now. I've now seen racing on ice. But there is a race meeting that takes place in Spain every year, and that's proper racing uh, with the starting stalls. I'm, I'd love to do that as well. It is San Lucar horse racing held annually on the beach at the Spanish town of San Lucar de Barrameda in Andalusia. Uh, and I, I'm all for going to that uh, because... Uh, uh, it might end up in a book after all, you know, <laughs> my problem is that not only have I written 15, but my father wrote 39. That's 54, yes. yeah. 54, 54 stories you can't use again. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm desperate. I'm always desperate to think of a, a plot uh, as I am at the moment. Felix, it's been fantastic chat. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, and uh, listeners uh, enjoy listening to this and also enjoy reading the book. A big thank you to Felix for sharing so much with us there. I'll be back with another interview shortly, but thank you for listening and bye for now. Mm-hmm.